0: This week's Parsha is Parsha Tzav. Tzav means to instruct or command. And it's basically a continuation of last week's Parsha, Vayikra, Leviticus, uh, which discussed uh, 20 or so different kinds of offerings and sacrifices. And in this week's Parsha, we're going to get some more details and some more laws in many of the sacrifices we talked about last week. We're going to get a few new sacrifices as well and new offerings and at the end of the parsha, we're going to learn about the week of preparation, of inauguration, when the tabernacle is finally finished. And now there's going to be a week-long training seminar of the Kohanim, of the, of the priests, of the sons of Aaron. And next week's parsha is called Shemini, which means the eighth, because it's the eighth day of that seven-day. After seven days of practice, there's the eighth day, which is the final inauguration day. So the verse starts off talking about the ola. The ola was, again, the first sacrifice discussed in Vayikra in last week's parsha, And the characteristic of the ola is that it's entirely consumed by fire. All other sacrifices have a part of it, or offerings have a part of it that's eaten by humans. Either the, the Kohen, or the Kohanic family, or the owner some human benefits from it. the Ola it's called Ola from a term that it goes up like Olaf. it refers to the fact that it's entirely consumed by the fire no human has any tangible benefit from it. there's a very famous Rashi the very first Rashi in the parsha that tries to understand why the Torah uses a very unique verb to describe the instruction given to Aaron. Regarding the Ola. And the verse is the verse says to command. Normally it says to speak or to say or to tell over. Command is a very strong terminology. And the question is, why? Zurashi so tells us very famously that whenever it says the word tsav, command someone, it implies that there is resistance to this particular instruction, and therefore it needs encouragement. And why does this Particular mitzvah need encouragement, says Rashi, because this is a expensive mitzvah. It costs it costs a lot of money. You want to bring a an ole. You have to bring a whole bull. Bowl. A bull is kind of expensive. I have to sacrifice it, and there doesn't seem to be any apparent or any tangible human benefit from it. Therefore, the Torah needs to encourage us regarding this. And you know, you think about it this way. You know, you imagine you go to the store, you go to the temple. Out the temple there's a huge like rodeo, where they're selling all the animals, and you buy a huge bull. You can imagine it's like two, two thousand or three thousand pounds. And there's a lot of amazing prime Angus beef there. And you bring it. You walk your sacrifice. You walk your animal to the temple, and you do the whole procedures. They slaughter the animal, and they take the entire animal for to break it up, and they burn it, and all that amazing states thousands of pounds of delicious succulent meat just going up to the heavens and obviously the the question is like we are wondering like couldn't you have left some over that we could have benefited it's a very expensive purchase and we don't seem to garner any tangible practical benefit and therefore we're less inclined to be generous in such an instance and therefore the Torah says tzav, instruct them, command them, encourage them, because they are not necessarily motivated to do that. And I think, you know, we have the upcoming holiday of Passover, Pesach. Now this is the first year, every year, this is our Chay and I's uh, 11th Passover we celebrating together. But it's the first one we're doing ourselves. We always went to parents or in-laws. And everyone always says that Pesach is very expensive to make. Uh, you know, you're buying matzah. A pound of matzah, the one that we that we bought, is $26 a pound uh, for sawdusty biscuits, essentially, that aren't very tasty. Even you kind of like it, but still. You are thinking about that, this is one matzah, it's a huge biscuit, essentially, and it costs you like around $4 for one matzah. It's very expensive. And... It's hard. And, you know, we think about this, like this is a mitzvah we have every year. There's a lot of mitzvahs. You know, uh, paying tuition to a Jewish school and kosher food is much more expensive. And in our life, we're surrounded by these Jewish expenses. And we're told that, yes, it's not easy. Even Aaron and, and Aaron's sons and the people that witnessed Mount Sinai, the people that should have been the ones who didn't need any encouragement, they too, when it gets expensive, the Torah has to kind of nudge them along because they are resistant to it. And I think for us today, it's comforting to know that if they need encouragement, and they didn't do it just so it wasn't just so easy, even them, uh, they needed to be coached along. Uh, Us certainly can feel uh, comfortable the fact that it's not necessarily easy, and uh, we have the Almighty, so to speak, uh, uh, encouraging us along the way. Now, the verse continues by talking about the first Activity done in the temple and in the Mishran every single day. The way it basically works, you have two sacrifices, two communal sacrifices every day, called the Karban Tamit. Tamit means the continuous ongoing sacrifices. One in the morning, one in the afternoon. And then over the course of the evening, there's three massive fires atop the altar. And they take the various parts of the sacrifice that are burned, and they place them on the altar, and they burn overnight. And in the morning, there's ashes there where the, uh, where the combusted sacrifices and wood uh, was the previous night before. The very first thing that happens before anything new for today's activity, the mit, there's a mitzvah to clear out the ashes of the previous night. And this, in verses 3 and 4, we get uh, two varieties of this mitzvah. Uh, the first one is that every single day, bar none, The Kohain goes up and he takes uh, a couple of uh, uh, handfuls of ashes and he places it alongside, he takes it off the top of the altar and places it along the bottom. And then verse 4 talks about when when, when the top is absolutely covered in ashes, then they clear it out entirely and they take it outside of the whole area and they, they put it somewhere else. So it's interesting here. It seems like there's something extra. When the temple, when the altar is entirely covered in ashes, you clear it all away. But even when it's not entirely covered, you still have to scoop up a little bit of ashes and remove it every single day before you start today's activities. And the question is, why is that necessary? If the whole purpose of getting rid of the ashes is to clear away the site, then wait till it's full, and then remove the whole thing. So maybe that's once a week. Every, every week, you'll have every, every Sunday morning, have a cleaning... Crew come in, clear out the ashes, and bring them outside of the are- uh, the area. Why is it necessary every single day, without fail, bar none, every day, to scoop up a little bit and remove it from the top of the altar? So I, I saw a very beautiful idea brought down from Rav Hirsch, the famous German rabbi of the 19th century. Uh, he says like this, he says, there's a, there's a, there's, it's important... Uh, to always be forward-looking. When someone concentrates on, on past performance, that's the enemy of future progress. And despite the fact that what you accomplished yesterday is great and you should feel very proud and joyous about previous accomplishments, it's critical to not get complacent and rest on your laurels and be suffice and be happy and be content with previous accomplishments because by doing that, it's going to it's going to hamper and impinge the ability to succeed today. And therefore, he says, this is a mitzvah here in the, in the temple, in the epicenter of the spiritual world. Every single day, before anything else happens, we have to look at yesterday's accomplishments, yesterday's mitzvahs, yesterday's sacrifices, yesterday's contributions, and take a little bit of it, it's a token amount of ashes, and remove it to remind ourselves that while yesterday's accomplishments are great, and before we start today, we have to clear that a little bit from our mind and not be too kind of excited and contemplative about it because it's important for us today to not get caught up with the actions of the past. I think it's a very powerful lesson for us. We, um, humans have almost unlimited potential of greatness. And... A lot of things, of course, are obstacles for our pursuit of greatness. We have lazy, we have bad character, we have a rod. There's a lot of things that are oriented and engineered to stop us from reaching our full potential. We all know that. But here we see that someone's own success actually can contribute to preventing their success. Specifically, the things that you did great Previously, that's going to stop you from doing more great things in the future because you can say, "Look at my accomplishments. I can't do any more." I want to, I want to, I want to ruminate a little bit on previous accomplishments. And here we see in the temple. This is a very powerful lesson. You got to clear that away. Yesterday, yesterday, is yesterday. You got to move on. Now, what have you done for me lately? What could you do for me today? That's what's critical. Before you start today, just a little bit. You don't have to clear it all away. You can still be okay and happy with yesterday's accomplishments. But in order to maximize today's output, it's important for us to clear our mind and not dwell too much on yesterday. Let's continue along uh, along this path. So it's interesting that in the entire Parsha of Vayikra, we talked about all the sacrifices, there is no mention of Aaron himself. We talk about the Kohanim, Aaron's sons, but Aaron himself is absent. And in this parsha, where you start talking right away about garbage disposal, we mention invoke Aaron. And the question is, why is Aaron not featured earlier and only over here uh, he's featured uh, specifically with what we would imagine to be kind of a demeaning job? There's a lot of really spiritual jobs that you would imagine are are more coveted, and yet there's a mitzvah here of just clearing away the ashes, doesn't seem to be such a great mitzvah, and then we throw in Aaron's name. So the Chasam Sofer, a great uh, Hungarian rabbi who died in uh, 1837, he says that this is exactly the point. We assume, we create these artificial constructs, artificial hierarchies of what's a... What's a minor mitzvah and what's a higher mitzvah? What's the greatest mitzvah? That's what we. That, that's that's a that's a human contribution. From God's perspective, it's every mitzvah is a mitzvah, right? If God's telling you instruction, doesn't matter uh, what the instruction is. What's critical about it is that the instruction comes from God, and therefore, regardless of how we perceive it, the mitzvah on its own, by dint of the fact that it is an instruction from God has the highest regard, or it ought to have the highest regard. But to us, we say, well, this is a very important mitzvah. Clearing away the garbage, that's for the custodian. That's for the janitor. That's not for us. And specifically, we're told, the most esteemed Kohen, Aaron, the Kohen of the high priest, the spiritual leader of the people, he's the one who should take out the garbage. Why? Uh, because... The mitzvah itself is valuable because the Almighty tells us to do it. Uh, It's not a demeaning task at all. There's a famous story with uh, with, uh, one of the Rosh Rosh Hashivahs in America. His name was Rabbi Gifter, who was a Rosh in Cleveland, Ohio. And the story goes that one of his prime disciples came to him with a dilemma. The dilemma is that he's a great Torah star after all. And uh, his wife doesn't recognize that. And she actually asked him to take out the garbage. So what do you do? I'm a great Torah scholar, the student says. And and then my wife, she goes and tells me, take of the garbage. I don't think it's appropriate for me. Someone who's a great Torah scholar, she have to go take out the trash. That's what he tells his, his rebbe, his teacher. So he says to her, says to him, you're absolutely right. It is not befitting you at all. A great Torah scholar who spends his time studying Torah, it's totally inappropriate for him to uh, take out the garbage, so the guy's all uh, excited, he goes home, the next day there's a knock at the door, and uh, he opens the door, and uh, it's the Rosh Hashiva again, and it's like, well, what are you doing here, why well, he came to visit me, he says, well, I heard that there's a house that no one's taking out the garbage, so I figured I'll be the one to come to help take out the garbage. <laughs> that's the, kind of a nice lesson, um, and, and that's, that that's just a very powerful thing. Uh, We think we assume that you know some things are some things are 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 very important, very you know ought to be done by the most esteemed people. Other things, oh no, that's not a mitzvah for me. And his teacher is showing him, no, 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 no. For you, your mitzvah and your family is to bring out the garbage, and if you don't want to do it, I'll come show you, and I'll do it. So of course, I'm sure he learned uh, his lesson. I want to also posit that a mitzvah that does not have glory attributed to it. A mitzvah that doesn't have fan fear, a mitzvah that doesn't garner accolades for its doer, is probably more special and of a greater spiritual accomplishment because it's done for the appropriate reasons. So it's ironic that the mitzvahs that we think are less important the way the verse tells us In the book of Deuteronomy, the mitzvahs that someone tramples on them with their heel, not so important. You do those mitzvahs, and indeed, that's what's going to help build your spiritual edifice much more than the mitzvahs that you get a uh, human-based or a a, a terra firma-based kickback. You're like, oh, people give you a slap in the back. Oh, this is an important mitzvah. Those are the ones that don't really contribute because... It doesn't bring you to the spiritual world. You would do it anyhow for the physical world. So how is it actually changing you? Okay, so if you... um, The next uh, next item here is you look at uh, verse 2 and then verse 3 and verse 5. It mentions that there are three fires atop the altar. And from this, our sages derive that there's three separate fires on top of the altar. One of them was for actually burning uh, the sacrifices. One of them is, was just uh, back you know, backup fire in case you needed to add to the central fire. And then the third one was to make coals that were needed for various parts of the sacrifices. I found very informative and, and interesting trying to look at these mitzvahs. So we have a lot of mitzvahs here in the whole book of Leviticus, of course, and this parsha specifically is nineteen separate mitzvahs. Then there's a there's a safe, there's a book written in the medieval times called the Book of the Chinuch, the Book of the Education. And what he does, he goes through the entire Torah in order, and he highlights the six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs where they appear in the Torah. And he gives a little snip, a little window into what the mitzvah is but also what the reason behind the mitzvah is. And I think it's very uh, powerful, specifically when we talk about sacrifices, things that don't seem readily, or, or the reason behind it doesn't seem immediately apparent to us to try to see what he says regarding these mitzvahs and to try to glean some practical understanding and lesson from these mitzvahs that seem to be very distant. So he says like this, why do we need to have these three fires? So he quotes... Uh, the source that indicates that when the Jewish people were at their spiritual peak, they didn't actually need a physical fire to consume the sacrifices. They would have a spiritual fire that would descend, not, not from the bottom up, from the top down, from the heavens, and consume the fire, consume the sacrifice. And he says that despite the fact that you wouldn't actually need... A physical fire to combust in order to consume the sacrifices, still, there's a mitzvah to have these pyres atop the altar in order to minimize these, the miracle. And he says, generally speaking, this is an idea that we find very often in the Torah, that even when there is a miracle, The Almighty always is going to shrink the miracle, make it as small as possible. So even though the actual sacrifices didn't even need the fire itself, there was a spiritual fire that consumed them, still we're told, do everything you can to make it appear as if it's being consumed via natural means. But then he says something very powerful he says, whatever someone is oriented with, everything someone is dealing with in a mitzvah setting, it's going to contribute to that parallel idea in their lives. For example, he gives an example. If someone in the temple, someone, we know that there was the show breads On the table, there was these breads. And it's just regular bread, but it's holy bread, spiritual bread but it's actually, it's it's a, it's a mitzvah done in with regards to bread. And therefore, uh, the merit was, if anyone who dealt with the spiritual bread, that would affect the bread portion of their lives. So it was a way for people to achieve prosperity in their lives, their crops would grow nice and robust, if they did a spiritual element of the bread, so to speak. And therefore he says we have in our life this idea of fire. And it's not clear exactly what he means, but I want to suggest that, you know, the fire is maybe a person's motivation. It's something that inspires someone. Uh, And it's also someone's temptation. That's akin to a fire. So this fire idea of our lives, just by doing a mitzvah of a fire, even though it's not needed for its uh, assumed task, But it's still a mitzvah that a kohen has to deal with the fire. It would help them in the fire aspects of their lives too, as well. Just a nice idea to bring this more uh, closer to our perspectives. Okay, so the verses here continue. We got some laws of the Ola. We get some more laws of the mincha, of the meal offerings. uh, What happens uh, to that? It's it's basically someone brings flour, and they mix it with oil, This, or they, they bake it, or they don't bake it, it depends which uh, variety of this they bring, it's not allowed to become chametz, whatever's left over is given to Aaron and his sons, and they, even though they can eat it at their leisure, still it cannot become chametz under their watch. And uh, then the verse in verse 12 talks about three different kinds of offerings that are only the exclusive domain of the Kohen. Only the Kohen can offer them. And they are, number one, every Kohen, the day that they are inaugurated into their uh, sacrificial responsibilities, the first day they bring a, this, uh, this offering, the Kohen Gadol, on the first day that he is nominated to his office, he brings uh, a second and thirdly, the Kohen Gadol himself brings one every day, brings actually two of them every day. So if you have a Kohen Gadol, I don't imagine this happened very often, but a, a high priest that, kind of like a Chief Justice Roberts, who became a Chief Justice, he never became a regular justice, he he just jumped to the top. But if you have a Kohen Gadol that never, was never a minor Kohen, just jumped right away into becoming a high priest, then on day one, they will bring three of these offerings. First, because they're a regular Kohen doing the first day of work. Second, because they're the, f- the first day of their uh, uh, of the office of being a Kohen Gadol. And lastly, because every Kohen Gadol brings this every day, they bring three separate offerings. So this is just the exclusive uh, contribution of the Kohen. And again, back to the Chinuch, what's the reason for this? And uh, he says like this, because the Kohen Gadol, he is the... Emissary of the Jewish people to God, uh, he his responsibility he has the whole Jewish people's uh, responsibility on his shoulders, and he has to pray for them every day, and he brings sacrifices for them as well. Uh, therefore, it's appropriate for for someone like this to have a continuous, ongoing offering, like the community as well. It means he's almost like a parallel to the community. The community itself brings daily sacrifices, therefore because he has the community's responsibility on his shoulders, he also brings daily sacrifices as well. And he says an interesting kind of psychological idea that when a person has his own thing, whatever it may be, in this case, it's his own sacrifice. It's not a part of a communal sacrifice. This one's mine. This one's not just part of a big group. This is myself. When if someone has that, he has more devotion towards it. You know, you think about the people uh, who have a little vegetable patch in their backyard. To them, like, they cherish every one of those tomatoes, they name every one of them, right? It, like, this is mine. Question: You go to Costco and you see like a huge bag of them for 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 three ninety nine, like, and they're nice and luscious, but they're not yours. You know, these are the ones that I toiled over, and they have much more meaning to me. Similarly, we want the Cohen Guggle to be involved and to be inspired and to be engaged on a very intimate level, and therefore we give him every day. He brings his own sacrifice, so he should be constantly engaged. And it should be his, and this is his contribution and his word, and therefore he'll be more involved and be able to fulfill his duties as the spiritual leader of the people. Now, there's a, an interesting idea that appears with regards to sacrifices twice in our parsha, but also is broadly applicable in other aspects of Jewish life, and that is that when you have something that's consecrated, it's holy, it's part of the sacrificial uh, sector, and it comes into contact with other foods. So you have, let's say, a sacrifice, and somehow it gets mixed with your regular steak, so to speak. The halacha is that when there is taste or substance of the sacrifice that is conferred upon a mundane piece of food, all the laws that are associated with the sacrifice transfer to the other neutral food as well. So, for example, there's many different laws with regards to who may eat a particular sacrifice. Uh, who may eat it, where they may eat it, in Jerusalem, in the temple, and when they're allowed to eat it. There's a cut of time. Some sacrifices have, have only the overnight, some have a day and a half, some have two days, but all of them have an expiration date. Now, the Kohen decides to mix his sacrifice steak with his regular steak, they both have the, the same status. It's almost as if the because they touched, the holiness is conferred upon the other food item and all the laws that are associated with the sacrifice now transfer to the other food item. Now, this, by the way, is the source for the idea of having two separate pots, one for meat and one for dairy. You have a meat pot and you have a, or you have a, just a neutral pot, a brand new pot. In the pot, you put a piece of meat and you cook it or you boil it or you roast it or whatever, but it's in that pot. So here we're told, something that comes into contact with a food item and it absorbs some of the taste, even if it's on a very imperceptible level, that item itself now has the same status of the food item. So you have a, the walls of the pot. Now, they came into contact with the meat, and it was hot, hot enough to transfer various particles of of taste and substance of the meat. And now this, the walls of the pot itself are considered as if they're meat, like little, like a cylindrical meat pot. Now you take dairy and you pour it in the same pot and you heat it up again. What do you have? You have you're cooking literally milk and meat together. But it's a clean pot. The answer is no. It's not a clean pot because here we're told that food and the status of food transfers uh, with taste and with substance and with heat, and therefore that's this is the reason why we today in, to fulfill the laws of kosher we have to have separate pots for milk and meat. And of course, there's many many different laws, but this is the core of the idea. Now, what would someone need to do to revoke that? You know, we have a Pesach upcoming. So the, this law applies with regards to chametz as well. You cook chametz, you put unleavened bread in a pot, that now enters the walls of the pot. You want to use that for Pesach, you're putting your Pesach stuff in and now it becomes chametz because go, it's in the same pot and and the, the taste transfers back from the walls of the pot into the food that you're cooking in it. I assume you have to burn it extra hard to get the chametz out. Exactly. Where's that sourced? It's sourced oh, again in this chapter. Uh, The verse tells us in chapter 20, whatever touches his flesh becomes holy. Again, the transference of of status. Uh, And what should you do? So verse 21 tells us an earthenware vessel in which it was cooked shall be broken. Which means that it depends what the material of the pot is. If the material is earthenware, we're told in the Torah, there's no way to revoke that status from it. And therefore, the only way to get rid of the taste, so to speak, is to break it, i.e. you can't revoke it. But if it was cooked in a copper vessel, then it should be purged, used heat to extract that taste and that status, and rinsed in water. And that's what we have today. In fact, actually today itself, uh, Sunday, the kosher organization of Houston is having a pre-Passover purging, which I guess taken out of context can mean something entirely different, uh, A pre where you, people bring their pots, clean the pots. They're clean, but they're, are they really clean? They still have chamets embedded in the walls. They have a huge mama pot in which they, they heat it up. It's constantly boiling. You drop the little pot or the little vessels inside of it, and you take it out, it's brand new. Everything is cleansed out of the pot, and now you can use it for Passover as well. Glass generally is considered that it does not absorb. If it does not absorb, then if it's clean, then it's fine. The big question is about uh, stainless steel because stainless steel, uh, according to everything we know about it, it does not absorb anything. Um, But the problem with that is that because because it it wasn't around then, therefore it's a whole question. Yeah, We know it doesn't absorb but are, is it enough to, we don't have a kind of an ongoing custom of that. Here we've told earthenware versus uh, copper. We're too, like there is This goes back thousands of years about how to deal with various different materials. Uh, there was one of the great rabbis in Israel, Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Orbach, he famously said that when the Mashiach comes, the first thing he's going to tell us is that stainless steel is not boleya. stainless steel is not absorbed, and thus he can use it for milk, for milk, and for flesheks, and for meat, no problem. That's what he says. Who knows? We'll wait and see. Okay, so some more laws over here. Uh, we were given more laws regarding uh, the guilt offerings we learned about last week. There's other various gifts that are given to the Kohen. And then in verse 11 of chapter 7, there's a brand new mitzvah, a brand new sacrifice that we haven't even mentioned last week. A carbon todah. In Hebrew, the word toda means thank you. And this is a sacrifice given in thanks and appreciation. God does something really wonderful to you. You bring a sacrifice to thank him. Uh, And Rashi tells us, of course, the Talmud, that there's four different things that happen to a person that would, uh, would be causes for him to be a thanksgiving sacrifice. Number one, you travel over a desert and you arrive safely. You travel over sea and arrive safely. You're released from prison. And you recover from a deadly illness. Those are four reasons to thank God. And you bring the sacrifice. And the question is, why does the Torah wait until this session? Last week's parasha, we talked about all, all the sacrifices. And in this parasha, it seems to be kind of supplemental laws of the sacrifices discussed last week. How come we see a brand new sacrifice that's only mentioned here amongst the instructions given specifically to Aaron, And his sons and the Kohanes. So I heard an amazing idea that I think is very powerful. We are predisposed to be wowed by miracles that upend the rules of nature. You have a splitting of the sea, ten plagues, manifolding from heaven. Those are really jaw dropping miracles that makes us really impressed. But the hidden miracles, the miracles that kind of could be explained away we tend to ignore and you look at these particular miracles you cross the sea so you don't know how many dangers you averted you don't know it's not it's not like you were that you fell up overboard and you were almost drowned and then you miraculously were saved it's You were safe all the time. You were with a caravan crossing the desert. You were in prison and you managed to get out. You were in illness and the natural course of the medicinal activities that you uh, undertook helped you. We don't necessarily attribute this to be something so miraculously. And therefore, specifically with regards to those, we are given an instruction to make a note of them and to uh, recognize them. I heard an amazing story. Uh, with Rav Shach. Rav Shach was a Rosh Yeshiva in Israel whose lifetime actually spanned the entirety of the 20, 20th century. He was born in 1895 and he died in 2002. So he lived to 107 years old and at the peak of his powers up, up to the very end. Pretty remarkable individual. He was the head of the famed yeshiva in Punevish. Punevish is a, is a town in Europe And when they moved to Israel, they renamed their yeshiva Ponevish as well. And he was the head of the yeshiva for 60 years. Once there was an individual, one of his students came to ask him with a question. What's his question? He recently was married. And within a year of marriage, the Almighty blessed him and his wife with a brand new baby daughter. And we know there's a custom when someone has a, a brand new baby, they make a celebration to thank God and we know of course there's a bris a circumcision celebration by a boy and there's a kiddush, which is a kiddush means like a sanctification party for the girl and he went and asked his 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 teacher you know it's it's it was no big deal so to speak like does he need to actually recognize memorialize and thank god so he told him imagine you and your wife were infertile god forbid for eight or ten years. And after eight or ten years, and all the treatments, and all the agony, and all the sadness, the Almighty blesses you with a baby daughter. Of course, you'd be overjoyed. You'd be atop the moon. And of course, you make a huge celebration to thank God. Well, think about it. The Almighty spared you eight or ten years of pain, and gave you a baby very easily right away. So, you should be doubly thankful of God because not only did He give you what you wanted, He spared you all the pain and agony. And this kind of shows the disconnect. When something is hard for us to obtain, then we're very thankful of it. When something is easy for us to obtain, we ignore it. Revealed miracles are, are ones that we, uh, open miracles, are ones that we are more inclined to thank God. I hit a hidden miracle. That's something that we need just as much, but we do not recognize it. or We, we do not tend. We're, not, we're disinclined to recognize it, and therefore we have to make a note to thank God for those as well. Who needs this lesson more than anyone else? Who needs to be reminded of the importance of recognizing hidden miracles more than anyone else? Someone who is constantly surrounded by open miracles. And the Mishnah tells us that the Kohen, in the temple, there was 10 ever-present miracles that constantly happened. I want to read, read them quickly to you here. Number one, no woman ever miscarried her baby while smelling the delectable and sumptuous steaks being roasted in the temple. We know that uh, if a woman has a craving, it's, it could be potentially dangerous for her, for her child. And over the thousands of years of the temple and the Mishkan, there was never a time where a woman miscarried her baby because of uh, smelling the states in the temple. Uh, number two, the, the meat of the sacrifice is never spoiled. Number three, there was never any flies uh, in the butcher house of these sacrifices, number four, the Kohen Gadol never had a seminal emission that would invalidate him from the services on Yom Kippur. Number five, the water of rain never extinguished the fires atop the altar, no matter how much it was raining. The fires, uh, they, uh, they persisted. The wind never dispersed. The clouds atop the altar. Um, there was never any invalidation of certain sacrifices. Additionally, in the temple, when all the Jews would pack themselves in, they would be kind of really tight, so to speak. There would be no not a lot of room. But when people had to pray to God, there was suddenly was, there was room available because no one wanted to hear what the neighbor. Or no one wanted the neighbor to hear what they had to say to God. Additionally, broadly speaking, in Jerusalem itself. Uh, whenever the temple was in existence, there was never a snake nor a scorpion that injured a resident of Jerusalem. And lastly, there was always ample room in Jerusalem for visitors. Remember, Jerusalem was the was the, was the the site of pilgrimages. All Jews would come to, from all across the world, would come to Jerusalem several times a year to celebrate holidays. So where do you do? You move and you go to Airbnb and you find a place to stay. There was always room for people to, people to stay. No, no matter how big the Jewish community uh, burgeoned into, there was always room in Jerusalem to stay. These miracles uh, were consistent throughout the thousands of years that the temple was extant. And the Kohanim surrounded by constant miracles, need to be reminded more than anyone else not to forget about the hidden miracles that we would tend to ignore. Very nice idea here. Okay, some more laws over here. We're told in verse 15 that when you have a sacrifice and there's meat that you're supposed to eat and there's a deadline by which you have to eat them, you're not allowed to leave it over until the following day. And if you do, you have to burn it. That's one law. And another law in verse 18 talks about the law of pigrel, which means when someone, when someone uh, performs one of the aspects of the sacrificial procedure with improper thoughts, which means he intends to do something improper at a various stage of the sacrifice. That would invalidate the entirety of the sacrifice, even if the person doesn't actually do what they had thought to do. So for example, someone says, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm slaughtering the sacrifice, but my intention is to eat it in a week and a half after it's ready. No longer within the window of allowance of time to eat it, that's called pigrel, and that would not be allowed to be consumed and it has to be burned. Uh, so that that these these two ideas where some some sacrifice could go uh, become in, invalidated and it has to be burned. So I I found again a very interesting idea in the chinuch of explaining this mitzvah. He says like this. He says that when someone, someone has a, he's a Kohen, and he has had a very good day in the temple, and he has garnered a huge amount of meat for his own consumption. Now, of course, there is a temptation to take the meat and to stow it away in the freezer for a rainy day. Now you will have abundance. And what do you do? Like, what are you inclined to do? Not to eat it all today. To wait, to to save it. Who knows? Maybe in a month and a half, you'll be really hungry. You'll have no meat to eat. And now you'll have, you'll be able to save it till then. Preserve it for a later date. He's told, we're told in the Torah, no, 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 no. You eat this tonight. Whenever you don't finish tonight, you burn it. Why? This is reliance on God. Very similar to what we had with the, with the manna. You know that, your confidence that the Almighty will give you food when you need it, and therefore there is no need to stockpile. And this is, of course, the Kohen in the temple should have a sensitivity to know that the Almighty is involved with us on an ongoing basis, and therefore if I have enough now, it's not necessary for me to save so much, to think about what's going to be in a few months or a few years from now. Just rely on God and He will indeed provide for you. very important idea that we learn over here. And then there's many more laws here. Um, one of them in particular I want to focus on is the Torah tells us that we're not allowed to eat chalev, certain fats of the animal, uh, in verse 23, and that we're not allowed to eat the blood of the animal, um, not from birds, not from other animals, and someone consumes the blood, their soul is cut off from the people. Very harsh punishment for someone who consumes blood. So, uh, again, what could be the reason behind this? So he says something very interesting. To me, this was a, a huge insight. Uh, we know the Torah does moderate a lot of what we can and cannot eat. The laws of kosher, of course. And he says, the Chinuch does, that our body, of course, is is the spiritual, is a tool for us to actualize our spiritual ambitions. Of course, our essence is our soul, but the body is the the tool through which we can actualize the ambitions of our soul, and it's important for us to tend to it and to t- to care for it to make sure it doesn't wither. And therefore, we have to make it strong. If you eat healthy foods, then your body will be healthy. If you eat unhealthy foods, then your body will not be healthy. And therefore, he says, broadly speaking, a general principle: any food that is prohibited is something which is likely to be unhealthy too. And therefore he says, these fats, he's talking about cholesterol. This is cholesterol. It's bad for you. It'll clog up your arteries. And therefore the Torah says, don't eat it. Which is a very dramatic, very, very kind of practical idea. Uh, We know, generally speaking, the attitude is as well. The Torah says what you can eat, what you cannot eat, and that's it. You just follow instructions blindly. Here we see a very nice reason is that as a general rule he says, all the things that are prohibited to consume are actually not healthy for us as well, and thus avoiding them is actually for our own physical benefit. Very powerful idea. Now, regards to blood, he quotes the Ramban here. The Ramban says that you are what you eat. Whatever someone consumes becomes part of them. And he says, if you have the blood, the blood is kind of the lifeblood of a Living organism it contains like the essence of the organism, and therefore says the Ramban, if someone consumes the blood of an animal, well, what does that mean? It means that they're 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 uh, internalizing the essence of the animal, and the animal is something you want to avoid. We don't want to be like animals. Therefore, says the Ramban, that's why the Torah says that we should not consume the blood of animals because we do not uh, want to become like animals. In fact, we're trying to avoid being like animals. Our body's like an animal. Our, we want to be more like our soul, and we want to disavow our animalistic side, and it would be uh, counterproductive for us to consume the blood of animal and become more animal, animal-like. animal There's a very important insight here, very important insight here in verse 37. Verse 37 where it recoups or recounts kind of, it uh, summates everything that we've said earlier. This is the Torah. This is the law. And it runs through all the sacrifices brought uh, discussed earlier, the Ola, the Mincha, the Chathas, the Asham, the Minluim, the Zevach Hashlam, all the sacrifices. This is the Torah. This is the law. And the Talmud tells us in the Book of Menachos that when it says this is the Torah and it quotes all the sacrifices, what this actually is implying is that when someone studies the Torah portions of a sacrifice, it's as if they fulfilled the sacrifice itself. So if someone studies the laws of sacrifices, you don't actually bring a sacrifice, we're not in the temple, we're not in Jerusalem, but because we are studying the laws, it's almost as if it's attributed as if we have brought the sacrifice ourselves. And I think this is a very important, it's in a very important lesson because as we've mentioned previously, the Torah contains 613. and actually our body and our soul contain 613 parts too. And that's not a coincidence. It's because the function of the mitzvah is to embolden and empower and sustain our spiritual 613, and thus every mitzvah corresponds to an aspect of our spiritual life, and thus when we get to Olam Abba, we get to the spiritual world, and we cast off from us the garment, the body, well, then we have a spiritual body, so to speak, a spiritual avatar, a spiritual representation of self, and that vi- the vitality and health of that soul is contingent upon how well we fed it, so to speak, with mitzvahs. And the obvious problem with that is, well, how many mitzvahs can we all fulfill today? All of us have 613 parts of our soul, But not all of us can fulfill all 613 mitzvahs. So how do we fill in the gap? How do we sustain our soul in the elements of the soul, that the mitzvahs we cannot fulfill? And here's the answer. When you study the Torah, this is one of the reasons why there has been such an obsession throughout history to study Torah for the Jewish people, because it fills in the gap of our spiritual avatar. By studying the Torah aspects of a mitzvah, You accrue the benefit of the mitzvah itself and you're able to create a complete and unblemished spiritual self, not lacking any parts. Get to Olam Abba when the garment is removed, so to speak. The physical representation of self is removed. We could have a healthy and robust spiritual self to flourish in the world, uh, the spiritual world. Very important idea. And chapter eight, the last chapter of our Parsha talks about the seven days of inauguration of the tabernacle. For these seven days, Moshe is the high priest. He remember he was the one who's going to have to transfer the high priesthood and the priesthood from himself to Aaron and Aaron's sons. He's going to have to abdicate this office. And for these seven days, the Koh- Kohanim themselves are being trained. And every day Moshe is assembling and disassembling the Mishnah, the tabernacle. And next week's Parsha is going to tell of what happened on day eight. Uh, It's – unfortunately, it's not going to end so positive. There's going to be a certain element of tragedy uh, during this week of inauguration. And I want to end off with a powerful idea from Rav Hirsch. Again, Rav Hirsch. Uh, He said that for these seven days that we're building – assembling and disassembling the Mishkan, the tabernacle, that represents the seven times that this tabernacle has been assembled and disassembled. And he goes through them. In history, there there was a tabernacle in 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 the wilderness, and then it was moved to a place called Gilgal, finally spent several hundred years in a place called Shiloh, and then Nov and Givon, so that's five locations. The first temple, Temple of Solomon, second temple built by Ezra, And each one of them, it was abandoned. It was destroyed, so to speak. And that is represented by the seven days where Moshe built and and then deconstructed the Mishkan. But once it's built on the eighth day, it's kept assembled, and that is referencing the eighth time that the Mishkan will be built and will not be destroyed, and may it come speedily in our days. And I look forward to seeing everyone next week. Next week, we'll learn the Parsha of Shemini, and the following week is Pesach and we will be off and we'll continue Tazrim the week after Pesach.